<laughs> you know, we held up our hands if we knew Mike before he started two weeks ago now. But we all know Mike, and we kind of sad to lose you. <laughs> well, thank you very much. You haven't lost me yet. <laughs> you lost us. <laughs> told that that's a common occurrence, but I, <laughs> I, I don't understand it quite uh, because I'm sure all of you brought your outlines back today, right? Uh, oh, hey, Fred, I see a couple of them. Anyway, uh, and, uh, I was uh, threatened with uh, retribution if I didn't uh, stick to the outline and get, <laughs> and get this program wrapped up today. So I'm uh, having been threatened by somebody who is relatively close and can wreck retribution on it. <laughs>
calling for a new cosmology to replace uh, whatever cosmology we're now dealing with, whether it's biblical or Newtonian or, or whatever else, a new cosmology that respects the discoveries that we've made in the last century. Um, we have learned more about our universe in the last century than in all the centuries before that. It is incredible when you think back about it, how much we now know about the universe as compared to what we knew when the year 1900 mm -hmm. dawned. And, uh, every, you know, <laughs> well, anyway, I won't go into that because that's, it's germane, but it's not, at any rate, if you think in terms of cosmic time, the uh, universe, our universe is right now about 14 billion years old. Our solar system is about four and a half billion years old. It's taken uh, four and a half billion years for us to arrive at the point that we have arrived at today. So when you think that way, you say 1800 years, whoa, <laughs> an eye blink comparatively. Uh, and it is an eye blink. Actually, civilized civilization is an eye blink. Civilization, or a reasonable facsimile there, goes back only 6,000 years, 4,000 B.C., give or take a year or two, is the beginning of civilization as we understand it. And our, you know, our tradition requires a, <laughs> retires people who know how to speak to one another in some sort of language, here we'll talk about Babel in just a minute. And it requires a record which we recognize as authoritative. And I talked about that in the, in the first one, see. And one of the things that Pinnock and Abram are pleading with for new cosmology is for us to start, you know, when we talk about uh, voting, for example, we talk about you, you think locally, vote nationally. Um, or you think nationally, you vote locally, however it is. What they're pleading for a, a world is a world where people think cosmically and act locally. Not just nationally, but cosmically. One of the things that they're pleading for is that they, the sun is about halfway through its lifespan. As far as we know now, uh, the universe is expanding and will continue to expand. That's because dark energy is increasing. Uh, I won't go into that. Just trust me on it. Most of, the physicists, uh, most of the physicists think that the universe will continue to expand. And that if we have progeny who exist a thousand years from now, they'll see a different sky than we see today because a lot of what we see in the sky today will beyond, be beyond our physical sight. Now, we may have instruments to see beyond that, but we, we don't have them right now. And what they're pleading for is we've got time if we can straighten out the social mess on the earth. And if we have time, there's practically no limit to what we can do. But we have got to start thinking, at least globally, if not cosmically. You know? To stop talking about the end of the world. As far as we know, physically, the end of the world is not coming, unless we have a unless we have a collision with some other uh, planetary, or some other uh, sidereal body, some other uh, planetoid, or whatever <laughs> might come in, a meteorite hit the Earth as has done in the past. We've got the time, but we've got to solve 
the basic problems on earth and what I guess I'm pleading for. Why I'm talking about God's drama for this creation is that I don't see any other path. The last grace hope of this earth, I think, lies through the Christian faith, Judeo-Christian tradition, and ultimately the Christian faith. Well, I have, you must have figured out by now. I have a good deal of respect for our, our forebears of the faith, the Jews. Now, I pointed out that in the act of preparation there were two great laws. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now that's a fine law, except for the fact that the word love is one of the most abused words in the English language. Uh, as you know, the Greeks had four words for love. Um, storge, philia, eros, and agape. Uh, the biblical term is agape. And that means basically love which is other-directed. It is not self-centered. Hear me? So when we, when we talk about loving God, what do we mean? Do we mean we feel kindly toward God? Well, I don't know that, <laughs> I don't know that you can trust feelings. At uh, one time, you know, when I used to counsel people in marriage, I would say to them, the commitment to love someone has nothing to do with how you feel about it. As a matter of fact, it has everything to do with, it has everything to reject feeling. It is when you feel the worst towards somebody else that you really got to work to love them, that you really start to understand what love is. Understand? I feel the same way about God. Do I always appreciate what God is doing or what's happening to me? Or do I, well, I don't usually blame him, see, I, because I understand, and one of, the, one of the basis of this program is the understanding that the human experience vis-a-vis -vis God is a dialogue between God and human beings, that we have free will. And I can point to examples in the act of preparation where God changed his mind a couple of times because of what human beings said. Moses is one of them, as you well know. Because after Moses got the, the people out of Egypt and the nation was formed as the primary event in the history of the people of Israel, they, they kind of rebelled against God and against what Moses was saying to them. And God said, I'm going to wipe this people out and I'll build a new nation out of you. And Moses said, thank God he said it. He said, not on your tin type. You wipe them out, you wipe me out too. You're not going to make a nation out of me. God thought about it and said, no, all right, but they're not going to enter the promised land. They're all going to die in the wilderness. That's what I mean when I say the story of the Judeo-Christian tradition, at least as far as I understand it, is dialogical. God is not making it up as, as he goes along, but in a certain sense he is. And when I say I love God, it means that with the best of what I know from where I am, I'm going to try to find out what God's will for me is in any, get, any given situation and follow it. It is not to feel anything about God. It is a willful commitment. Now, of course, the better I understand this drama, the better I'm going to be able to play my part. And once again, that underlies the story. And I feel the same way about uh, loving others. I'm going to try to discern what is the best for someone else. And that's a dangerous thing to do. <laughs> and then uh, do my best to help that person whom I love achieve 
whatever it is that seems best to me for him or her. That's what I mean by, and I have to do that in the context of my Christian faith. So love God and love your neighbor. Those two commandments point in the direction of the solution to the uh, to the resolution of the two sins of creation, Eden and Babel. All right. And so we come out of the act of uh, preparation. Uh, and incidentally, throughout the act of preparation, God is proactive in doing, in guiding his people as best he can get them to listen to him and do what he wants them to do. Uh, of course, they, uh, they were always uh, stumbling away from that. And I said something else about uh, sin in the Hebrew tradition that is important for you to notice. And that is, sin in the Hebrew tradition is not an inherited condition. We are not sinners because we're sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, at least according to the Hebrew tradition. None of the prophets of Israel ever said, you all are breaking the law of God because you're all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. You know? No, 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 no. Original sin is a Christian doctrine. It is not a Jewish doctrine, and it's one of the doctrines that separates us from Judaism even today because they don't understand sin that way. They understand sin as not keeping the law, as breaking the law, the Torah. Alright? So, you, you need, God was leading these people as best he could toward his purposes for them. He was leading them to a point where they would, at least some of them, and maybe ultimately just one of them, would figure out who his son was and what he meant when he sent him. And so we come to the third act of this drama. The third act is the act of revelation. I don't want to, I, I don't want to say there is revelation in the first act in preparation. There is revelation in the second act in the act of preparation of a, of a kind. But in this third act, we have the two great revelatory events which establish the Christian tradition. And they are, easily enough, uh, crucifixion, resurrection, and Pentecost. So the act of revelation extends from the birth of Jesus Christ to Pentecost. And I'll make a break there because that is the revelation of the fullness of God. Um, let me let me pick up, pick it up. Crucifixion, resurrection is one event. The crucifixion, Jesus dies. If Jesus had stayed dead, uh, you and I wouldn't be here to talk about it. But he was raised from the dead. Resurrection. It was the flip side of the event of crucifixion. Was it necessary that he be crucified? I'm not sure about necessary. I think it was inevitable. I like that, that word a little bit better. Um, just exactly, there is a sense in, let me say it this way, there's a sense in the New Testament 
that the solution to the alienation between God and man is wrapped up in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now just exactly how that is wrapped up in that crucifixion, how the, the resolution of that alienation is wrapped up in crucifixion and resurrection is not ever clearly or specifically defined. We have theories about it, but there is no specific definition in the scripture. Now the, the theory about it in the scripture is that the one that is most commonly understood is uh, substitutionary atonement. That the only way God's wrath and anger could be satisfied was through the death of a perfect sacrifice, i.e. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the perfect, the incarnate Son of God. That was the only way that God's justice could be satisfied. Let me just say that I don't like that. I've never been comfortable with substitutionary atonement. It goes way back in the condition, uh, in the tradition, back fundamentally to Anselm, poor uh, Deus Homo, why God man, the God man, so that we could have that perfect sacrifice to satisfy the wrath and the justice of God, because I don't like the the picture of God that it um, that it creates. I'm more comfortable with something that's called the kenotic theory. And it has to do with the Greek word kenosis, which means emptying. It means Christ emptied himself, poured himself out upon the cross for us human beings. You find that in Philippians, the second chapter, being found in the form of man, he became, he humbled himself and became a slave to all. And he emptied himself. Let me get the, let me get the scriptural passage out here so we can Take a look at it. This is uh, the from the hymn to uh, to Jesus, about Jesus Christ, found in the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death upon the cross. Um, I was teaching a course similar to this in a first church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, shortly after I got to Tulsa to be a professor on the School of Theology at Oral Roberts University. And after the class, one young man came up to me and he said, you know, Mike, he said, I read the Old Testament, and I read about this God of wrath in the Old Testament, and then I read the New Testament, and all I read about is sweetness and light. Thought about that for a minute. Uh, well, okay. And then he said, Where do you find the wrath of God in the New Testament? And I don't always get 
signals from above. <laughs> Matter of fact, I very seldom get signals from above. Most of my signals come from some other direction. But anyway, <laughs> that one time I did. And without even thinking about it, I said, you need to look at the cross. Because until you looked at the cross enough to see there not only the passionate love of God, but also the wrath and the fury of God, you haven't looked at it enough. Well, that may contradict everything that I've said about that, but I don't think God was pleased with the crucifixion of his son. I really don't. I don't think he was happy about it. I think he was very angry about it. I trust you realize when I say these things about God, I am talking about a personal God, a God who has personal attributes, and that is part of our Judeo-Christian tradition. That came home to me one time when I was um, uh, I was asked to baptize the son of a, a Japanese Jewish man and his wife um, <coughs> and his wife who was a devout Buddhist. And the son was five years old and they were attending a church that I served in Woodridge, Illinois. And uh, Kay, uh, the, the husband, and his family were devout Christians, and of course Jean, the, the wife, was a devout Buddhist, and the issue of baptism of this son had been an issue for all of his five years. But for some reason, uh, they decided after coming to our church for a while that they, they really, they wanted to have the son baptized, and that they were willing for me to do the baptism, and that Jean was willing for me to do the baptism. Now, she wasn't going to participate. She was just going to be there, of course. But So uh, I did what I normally do. When people ask me to baptize, I made an evening appointment and went over and spent a couple hours talking about the meeting of baptisms. <laughs> and I thought, well, this is an interesting situation. Um, very interesting. So I finally said to Jean, who incidentally taught in uh, Buddhist schools, she was set, uh, devoted to Buddhists, I said, uh, Gene, I said, what is the major difference between Buddhism and Christianity, or the Judeo-Christian tradition? And she didn't hesitate a minute. She said, the idea of a personal God. I said, well, what is God to you? This was many years ago. I'm not quite so stupid now as I was then. But I, I said to her, what is God to you? She said, well, she said, God is truth with a capital T or love with a capital L or goodness with a capital G. And I said, yes, we've got a problem. We do have a problem. And I now know, as you probably do too, that, that Buddhism is non-theistic. They don't have any real concept of God. So what Jean was telling me was absolutely true. And that is a distinct difference between our two traditions. I don't think it's a, a difference that can ever be bridged. It's a different way of looking at the world. Um, we believe in a personal God. And we believe that our personality 
contains something of the image and likeness of that personal God. Understand? And that makes quite a difference. So Jesus died on the cross. And I have a feeling that the whole, all of the passion of the personal God was revealed in the cross and ultimately the glory of God is revealed in the resurrection. It's not, again, I'm a disciple of C.S. Lewis. It's a deeper magic. A deeper magic. It's a mystery. But I am convinced it is the solution to the alienation between God and human beings. You know, I said, I said that God had delayed the coming of Jesus until the scene was set and somebody might get the right idea, figure out who this man was that was coming among us, this, his, uh, his uh, incarnate son. And uh, it took 18 years to get to that, and even then it was kind of chancy. I have a theory about why Jesus appeared when he did. Jesus appeared right in the midst of what we now know as the age of apocalypticism. It was an age, and it began about 190 uh, B.C., and it lasted until about 130 A.D., perhaps. Uh, it was a specific period of time, and in that period of time, there was a heightened expectation among the people of Judaism that God was going to intervene dramatically in the history of the world. It came out of a despair that the history was moving by itself toward the thing that they called the kingdom of God. And that the only way the kingdom of God would come is if God would dramatically intervene in the life of the world. And so, seeing that, God decided to risk it, as far as I am concerned, and sent his son in the hopes that at least someone would figure out what was going on in this incarnate Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, in the history of the world, because they were expecting something to happen. And of course, <laughs> it ultimately hinged on one <laughs> blundering fisherman. <laughs> standing in front of this Jesus of Nazareth one day and hearing him say, okay, who do people say that I am? And the disciples answering, well, some think you're uh, John the Baptist, come back to life, or they think you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then, then he said, yeah, but, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Now, I've heard people preach on that a couple of times. And I've even preached on it myself a couple of times. But that was not just a rhetorical question. Jesus really wanted to know what these guys had figured out about him. Because if they, who had been closest to him through the time of his ministry, hadn't figured it out, who in the world would? How many of you have been to see the Cotton Patch Gospel? Okay. I love that scene. I love it. I absolutely love it. Tom Key did it perfectly. And I, and I saw him, the first time I saw the Cotton Patch Gospel, he was doing it out in Tulsa. And I really loved it. You know, and he said, okay, uh, who do you say that I am? And there's Peter. Oh, 
there's Jesus. Come on, Pete! <laughs> Who do you say that I am? There's Peter. Oh, we went over that last week. Finally, <laughs> <laughs> there's the light dawns. Oh, you're the son of the living God. <laughs> Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. Even though Peter got the words right, as you well know, he got the idea wrong. <laughs> he got the words right. And that was important. That was important. And Jesus realized that he didn't do it on his own. None of us do. None of us ever get it on our own. Don't, don't believe that. We need a little help. First of all, we need the help of those who in Christ love us, and then we need the help of God even beyond that to get it. And once we've got it, <laughs> do we always keep it straight? No! You know, if we follow the example of Simon, the fisherman, because he was Peter that moment, the rock of faith, and then about two seconds later, he was Simon, the, the stupid fisherman. That's not what I meant! You know, I didn't mean that you were going to go to a cross. I didn't, you can't possibly do that. That was what he said, and you know, and Jesus gave him a new name. That was a, that was a it was a, it was a name-changing game, really. You know, you're Peter, the rock on the tent of my church will be able to get behind me, Satan, <laughs> you adversary of God, you adversary of God. You're not thinking straight. So our faith hinges on the, the announcement of one stumbling, blundering fisherman, the big fisherman, the resurrection. I once read a book by a rabbi by the name of Pincus Lapide, The Resurrection of Jesus. And he said, this is a rabbi now, he said, that the resurrection of Jesus is the most verified fact in the history of the human race. Thank you, Rabbi. <laughs> I didn't know you believe that, but of course, when it got down to it, he considered that uh, Jesus was the uh, Jesus was the Savior of the Gentiles and the Messiah of the Gentiles, the Anointed One of the Gentiles, and that the Anointed One of the Jews was still to come. And I was talking about this with uh, Rabbi Tam, who used to be uh, the rabbi down at the uh, down at the temple below here. And he said, you know, honestly, Mike, he said, if the Messiah of the Jews coming is Jesus returning, I will not be disappointed. Well, rabbi Tam and I had a had a good relationship. It was brief, and I didn't see him very often, but he was a fine man. I really appreciated that. So, in some sense, that is a resolution. The crucifixion, re resurrection is a resolution between God and human beings. And once that issue had been resolved, it was safe to send the Holy Spirit. Until then, it was not. Remember, I said. The reason that languages were confused, according to the biblical record, was so that we wouldn't conspire together in a condition of alienation from God and achieve something like an atomic bomb. 
and whatever other tower of Babel we want to build. But that once the the alienation between God and human beings had been resolved for the crucifixion and resurrection, then it was safe to send the Holy Spirit as a universal endowment for believers in Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ would be the standard by which we could test the spirits, and we could know whether they were real, true spirits of God or spirits of something else. If there are spirits of God, there are also evil spirits. I won't... I won't define this, I won't tell you the stories, but I'll just tell you that the one time I have been sure that I have been in presence of, in the presence of spiritual forces, it was not the Spirit of God, it was the Spirit of evil. One or two times in my experience. Once, once the alienation between God and human beings had been resolved, then it was safe to send the power of the Spirit, which is the ongoing power of Jesus Christ at work in the world. It is the third person of the Trinity. It is probably the most difficult to understand, but it is the motivating power that gives life to the church. And we come to the act of consummation. Obviously, the world did not come to an end with Pentecost. See, but the history of the world goes on, and what came was the church. Dear God, what came was the church. <laughs> I, I trust you realize that there is the church with the capital C, and then the church with the small c. And there is always a difference between the two. But don't ever think that the church with the small c is disassociated from the church with the capital C. I have never seen a gathering of people of Jesus Christ in which there wasn't at least some who sensed the power of the Spirit and lived out of the power of that Spirit and witnessed to the power of that Spirit and moved in the power of that Spirit and gave life to that body of stumbling sinners, if I could put it that way, in spite of the fact that we struggle along with the, the reality. Consummation, the act of consummation, it goes from Pentecost because at Pentecost we have the fullness of the revelation of God. There isn't going to be any more. We see Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Some of you might think, well, what about the mention of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is always much more closely related to the Spirit of Yahweh. It was given to individual persons for empowerment. It was never spread out as a universal endowment to the followers of Jesus Christ as it was in the New Testament. So we're not, when I talk about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, believe me, those that phrase is used only two times in the whole of the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, I'm not talking about the third person of the Trinity. When I talk about Pentecost, I'm talking about the third person of the Trinity. Come in fullness because it wasn't safe for people to relate to one another until the uh, problem of the alienation between God and human beings had been resolved through the, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And how long does the act of consummation continue? Well, it continues until the end of the age. That's one way of putting it. Uh, you can talk about, I like to talk about the new heaven and the new earth. The new heaven coming down from heaven as a, uh, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. Or the return of Jesus. Whatever. Whatever you like the best. 
either one. I, I just see that the, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and in the end he brings a new heaven and a new earth. And I wrote down something here that I want to share with you. That the kingdom of God, toward which we are all going, and which Christ introduced into the world, is, as far as I am concerned, two things. It is God's non-domination order. What am I talking about? One of the problems of humanity is that we is that from the beginning of civilization we have lived with a domination order. And that the game of humanity is who is going to dominate whom. And the whole life of Jesus of Nazareth was a critique of that and a rejection of that, even to the extent, man, who made me judge over you? I did not come to dominate you. I came to save you. Hear me? You are not put here to dominate others. You are put here to serve others. Who is going to be the greatest among you, the one who is servant of all? Who is going to be your leader, the servant leader? The kingdom of God is two things. God's non-domination order and servant leadership. The kingdom of God is a give and take between God and redeemed humanity. <clears throat> Will this order be transformed? I don't know. earth have to go through a death and resurrection? I don't know. I like to think that we have the power to transform the earth. That the new heaven and the new earth may yet grow out of the ultimate mission of the church. Which is to so live that finally the whole world shall worship him. Mission is to that extent, is to that purpose, that ultimately the whole world shall worship the God who revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And continues that revelation through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, dear friends, one final word in wrapping up. I talked about this as a drama. And of course, uh, you and I are not observers to this drama. I'm sure you've caught that along the way. Soren Kierkegaard taught me about that. Soren Kierkegaard, uh, the Danish preacher, philosopher of the 1850s or so, who was uh, considerably upset with the, <laughs> the church in Denmark, who was busy creating Christendom. So he would ask the question, how does one be a Christian in Christendom? And <laughs> he said that the average person coming in to worship on Sunday morning sees himself or herself as the audience at a play. Or a drama. And that his task is to judge how well that play is being performed. 
and that uh, and that the actors in the play are the ushers and uh, the choir and the preacher and the other helpers who are doing the play and that if God has a part in this it's as a sort of prompter off in the wings trying to remind the actors in the drama that the people in the congregation are observing uh, remind them of what they're supposed to do and encourage them to do it well. And Kierkegaard said, that's all wrong. That's all wrong. The congregation, when it comes into church on Sunday, are the actors. God is the audience. Those who are leading the worship are simply trying to remind the actors of their lives. Now, I haven't felt the same about worship since I learned that <laughs> years ago. And I, if I chafe about anything, it's how hard it is to get that idea across. And I, you know, I'm going to tread on toes here. I don't like to applaud in church. We have enough problems anyway trying to get Kierkegaard's idea across. Because I think Kierkegaard is right! We don't come in to see an acting or a play on Sunday. We come in to be experience the presence and the power of God looking over us and reminding us of what our place in the whole order of creation is. We are part of God's drama for this creation. And my hope and my prayer is that we will continue to move toward the redemption of the whole of humanity through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let us pray. Father, for the gift of your presence to us, for the gift of your Son to us, for the pouring out of your Holy Spirit upon us, for all of these things we continue to pray. We continue to lift prayers of gratitude, so that you may sit enthroned upon the praise of human beings. And that we, in our act of praise, may live out lives worthy of our calling under you, to your honor and glory, through Jesus Christ our Lord, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you.